you come. If you're thirsty, come and drink. If you have soul thirst today, Jesus offers himself for you to drink. And there's no fine print. You're listening to I Am, a sermon series at Shoreline Church. For more content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Last summer, I was reading a news story this week and was hit by this uh, incredible and really tragic story. Last summer, a 53-year-old man by the name of Jeff Murphy uh, was hiking in Yellowstone National Park when he completely disappeared. Apparently, park investigators found his body on June 9th uh, when uh, Murphy had apparently, uh, just days prior, fallen 500 feet uh, from Turkey Pen Peak after accidentally falling off a cliff. And um, the interesting thing is that Murphy was not just on any old hike. He was actually looking for a treasure box of gold and jewels Uh, that were um, basically worth around $2 million buried somewhere in the Rocky Mountains by an eccentric millionaire by the name of uh, Forrest Fenn. Sometime in the middle of 2010, this wealthy author, collector, and archaeologist hid a medieval chest filled with gold coins and other valuable artifacts somewhere in the Rocky Mountains for anyone to go and retrieve. And he wrote a book called The Thrill of the Chase, in which he hid clues to help people find the treasure. And inside the book is actually a, a poem that, that um, secretly encodes the exact whereabouts of the treasure. Uh, and, and if right now, if you were to go on and solve the puzzle, you could find it and, and basically the treasure uh, is yours. So NPR's John Burnett reported in 2016, he said the, the ornate Romanesque, nobody leave church by the way right now, um, I've got to take a flight. Um, NPR's um, John Burnett said the ornate Romanesque box is 10 inches by 10 inches weighs about 40 pounds when fully loaded, and Fenn has only revealed that it's hidden in the the Rocky Mountains, somewhere between Santa Fe and the Canadian border, uh, above the elevation of 5,000 feet. Uh, It's not in a mine, it's not in a graveyard, it's not near any structure. And so for further clues, you have to go read his poem and search. So here's a a sample of his poem. Here's one stanza. Uh, He says, begin it where warm waters halt, and take it in the canyon down, not far but too far to walk, put in below the home of Brown. So far, tens of thousands of people have reportedly gone looking for Finn's current treasure, including Jeff Murphy. Uh, But tragically, Murphy is the fourth person to die specifically looking for this treasure. Isn't this interesting? That only eight years ago, a poem was written that is fascinating Thousands and thousands of people inviting anyone to come and to receive a great treasure. And yet, 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood and cried out in a loud voice, and he invited anyone to come and to have a greater treasure, in this case, a fountain that would not just flow for you, but flow from you. And his name is Jesus, and he was speaking about living water. Today in our text, John chapter 7 we have what many theologians call the great invitation. And it's a a powerful passage of scripture. Sometimes we come across these passages that are a little more powerful than other passages, and this is one of them today. And so if you're taking note, 
Uh, this is going to be our outline today. Uh, we are going to cover, first of all, the great day of the feast. And we're going to learn why this day, this last day, is such a great day. Uh, we're secondly going to look at the great invitation of Jesus, how Jesus invites us all to come. And what does this invitation look like? Who is it for and what are the benefits of coming uh, and RSVPing to that invitation? And then finally, thirdly, we're going to look at, well, we'll call it the great plot of the Pharisees, but if you're taking note, you might want to jot in there the not-so-great plot of the Pharisees because we're going to see that their plans are going to fall apart right in front of them. So uh, with that in mind, that's kind of where we're going to go today. But before we look at them, uh, let's set the tone of the text. Look at verse 32. We just read it together, but look at verse 32. It says, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. A okay, little backstory here. Why, are, are, why is the crowd murmuring? What are they saying? Uh, well, if you remember from last week, they are suggesting that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, we saw last week, the beginning of John chapter 7, that Jesus has come to the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's conversing with the Jewish leaders of uh, the day and the people, and he's teaching in the temple. And the people listening kind of have mixed feelings. Like even today... There are some, as James just prayed, there are some who are believers and there are some who are non-believers. In the, group, in the crowd today, there are some who are, are fans of what's being taught today and there are some who are like, no, nah, I'm not into this. I'm not really believing this. And so Jesus is, is teaching and many people have mixed feelings. Some of them uh, are not sure what to think about and many, though, do believe he's the Christ. And so their logic is this. If Jesus is not the Messiah then how will the Messiah, the real Messiah, do anything greater than what Jesus is doing? And so they're really mixed on their assessment. But enough people, the crowd is starting to tip where enough people are believing Jesus, this guy is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And so that causes the Pharisees here in verse 32 to get upset. And so they send officers to try and capture Jesus. Now, when I think about the officers that they're sending to arrest Jesus, I can't help in my brain, but to flash back to maybe someone who resembled Barney Fife in some way. I'm just picturing they're, they're those kind of police, you know what I mean, like very inept. They're inept cops, and they're trying to, to, to arrest Jesus, but they're really unable. And so we'll see why they remind me of Barney Fife later. But, but notice what Jesus says in verse 33. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving soon enough, but it's not according to your timetable. Remember, we learned last week, my hour has not yet come. Eventually, his hour would come. And what he's saying here is that this will happen at the ascension, after I've been crucified, buried, resurrected, and seen by over 500. Then I'll ascend. My time is coming. I'll be leaving, and I'll be uh, going back to the one who sent me. And you will seek me. You'll look for me, but you won't find me. In other words, you're not invited to come with me. And so that statement confuses the Jews. They're like, what is he talking about? Hide and seek. What's going on here? And so verse 35, the Jews said among themselves, well, where does he intend to go? Where are you going to go, Jesus? Where, where are you heading? Are you going into the areas of the Greek dispersion where the Greeks have gone out from Athens and they've kind of settled into the known world? Are you going to go out and be among them? Is that what you're saying? Uh, what is he saying? You're going to seek me and not find me. They don't get it. 
They don't understand that Jesus is speaking about his death, resurrection, and ascension. But they think he's talking about taking a trip. And so they think, oh, Jesus must be saying he's going to go out and teach the Greeks. Uh, I like what uh, one commentator said. Bruce said this. Little did the speakers know that while Jesus was not to go in person among the Greeks, his followers would be numbered in the tens of thousands in the Greek lands in a few years' time. And so there's this ongoing confusion with the Jewish leaders and what Jesus is saying to them. And this isn't going to go away this week. It's not going to go away in John chapter 7. We're going to see it continue as we study this gospel. But in the meantime, they've sent their officers to arrest Jesus, to bring him to them. We know last week his time has not yet come. So do you think they're going to succeed? Probably not. Not going to happen. So um, look at verse 37. It says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, other translations say the last and greatest day, Jesus stood and cried out. Okay? I want us to look today at three great things, and the first is the great day of the feast. So if you're taking note, I'd like you to jot some notes down, and I do hope you take notes. Um, the last day of the feast. Let's talk about the greatest day of the feast. Of what feast? Well, if you are here last week, we um, kind of introduced the feast of tabernacles. And this is going to be from John chapter 7 to John chapter 10. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was also known, anybody know the other name, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Booths, yeah, B-O-O-T-H-S, Booths. The reason they called it that is because it was a week-long celebration where all of the Jews would come together, they would meet in Jerusalem, they would celebrate the harvest, and they would look back and celebrate God's faithfulness and his provision for them in their wilderness wanderings. They had to set up their tents and then tear it down. We know what that's like as a church, don't we? Uh, many of us do, because we set up everything you see here, uh, except for the basketball hoops. We set all of this up, we tear it down every Sunday morning and Sunday late morning. Uh, and so we understand what that's like. One day, right, we're praying for this, we're believing God for this, one day we'll have a space of our own, and we'll be able to settle into that, that facility, that building. What a glorious day that's going to be. Can't wait for that. Uh, well, I can wait for that. God, God, our time has not yet come. <laughs> the timing will be there, right? In the meantime, we have to set up, we have to tear down and sweat. Uh, and so the Jews understood that. And, and so the Feast of Tabernacles was their September, October, around our time frame now. And they would have um, gone onto their rooftops and set up and torn down um, these little booths, these little places to camp out and sleep in. The scripture commanded in Deuteronomy 16, 16, that all men... Uh, were to go to Jerusalem for three feasts, for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Booths. And so this is basically a big national camp out. You go up on your roof and you build these little forts, these little tents, and families would camp out. And, and um, you know, I look at that and I go, man, those are two things that all kids absolutely love. All kids love building forts, and all kids love getting up on the roof right? That, those are the two things all kids absolutely love. Hey, some of us men, those are two things we love to do for our children, right? I'm just building forts with the kids, and the kids aren't even there. Uh, we, lo we love this. It doesn't matter what culture you're from, how old you are, how young you are, we love to build uh, forts, and we love to get on the roof. That's kind of the pinnacle of childhood, isn't it? I mean, that is childhood right there. Maybe, am I the only one here? I guess I'm the only guy that's doing this, but um, we still build forts, um, at the Team Benham household. Usually in the home, there are old bed sheets that you pull out of the closet for your guests. So if you're ever a guest at our home, you're probably sleeping under a fort at one point. 
Um, you have the pillow anchor, and so we kind of build these, and um, you know, then the dog comes in and destroys all of our engineering genius, but uh, there's nothing like forts as a kid. Or, or getting on the roof. Love getting on the roof. Nothing more dangerous, nothing more exciting, nothing will make mom yell at dad more than dad inviting the kids up on the roof. Hey, she's not yelling at me today. This is good. And so, um, you know, you have the thrill of seeing the world or at least your neighborhood from the vantage point of the roof. So um, this incorporated both of them. Kids get up on the roof. They build these little little forts and um, they're asking mom and dad, why are we doing this? What is this tradition about? And the parents could have this opportunity, listen, to communicate God's faithful provision for Israel when they didn't have a home. Mariah Benham last week talked about how wherever she was on the planet as she was serving with mercy ships, that God was home. That wherever he he was, that was home. And, And that was really a reminder that God was to be their dwelling place. Remember, God had graciously provided water for them in Exodus 17 from the rock at Meribah. We'll look at it on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So God provided water for them in a desolate desert. Not only that, God provided food for them in the form of manna and quail. Uh, He also was with them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. His presence was literally with them in glory when he encamped among them. And so during this feast, they would illuminate the inner court of the temple and they would light the grand um, candelabra and they would remind themselves of the pillar of fire by night, which God was really representing and guiding them through the desert. So they also did a daily torch parade during this feast. Very joyous, festive, fun time. Uh, A time that old and young could look back and see God's provision and his protection and his presence. They could say God was our shelter and now he is our shelter even as we take these little forts to sleep in and remind ourselves of the time we didn't have a home. And parents could say, hey kids, God will always take care of us. He'll always be the one who provides either bread from the sky or water from a rock. We don't have to live in these things anymore. We now have a spacious land that flows with milk and honey. And parents mentioned it last week, but we need to have those stones of remembrance where we look back and celebrate days and times and say, these are, these are why, this is why we are Christian. This is, this is an important day. This is an important reminder of who God is in our life. But they didn't just look back. The Feast of Tabernacles was also a time you looked ahead. So if you're taking note, there was a daily procession that would return to the Temple Mount. Uh, Today we had a flute in worship. They had trumpets, so they'd be blaring the trumpets. Um, There's this big fanfare, and there a priest would fill a golden pitcher with water that had been drawn from the Pool of Siloam. And he would carry it back through the water gate. And as he walked, all the people would recite Isaiah 12.3 out loud. Uh, And they would come with a, I think we have a picture, a citrus fruit in one hand, uh, and in their right hand they would carry what's called a lulab. It was basically a combination uh, of a palm tree, a willow, and a myrtle tree. And this is kind of emblematic of their ancestors' journey through the wilderness. And so they'd have these in their hands, and they'd be be reciting Isaiah 12.3. And the priest would pour the water into a silver basin by the altar of burnt offering every day for the first seven days. 
And at the same time, another priest would pour out a pitcher of wine on the other side of the altar, which was a picture of the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit predicted by Isaiah. The people would break into Hallel songs, and it was just a joyous time every day of the feast. You've been in worship moments here at Shoreline when we're doing um, singing, and all of a sudden, we're just overcome by the resurrection. We just start clapping together and, and spontaneously cheering. It's that type of environment. Seven days. But then the last day, the eighth day, the great day of the feast. The eighth day was known as a holy convocation according to Leviticus 23. And this was a day that was kept as a Sabbath, uh, apparently observed as the memorial for their entrance into Canaan. Very solemn day. Very somber day. This is not the joyous day like every other day. The priests would still gather on the Temple Mount and there would still be that priest who would take the golden pitcher down to the Pool of Siloam. By the way, the Pool of Siloam was also known as the Pool of the Sent One or the Pool of the King. Not that those have anything to do with Jesus, the King who was sent. Anyway, uh, on this day, the great day, the priest would not scoop up water out of the pool. On this day, he would just walk back up to the Temple Mount with an empty pitcher. And this pitcher was symbolic of the fact that Israel was still thirsting, that they had not yet fully been completed. They were not fully fulfilled. They were still waiting for their Messiah. This empty pitcher reminded them that there was still a need for them to be filled, that the Holy Spirit would need to come and be poured out upon the nation. And so as he kind of symbolically poured out an empty pitcher on the last and greatest day of the feast, the priest would read from Isaiah 44 on the screen, verse 3. He would say this, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And this exact moment, it would have been absolutely, completely quiet. No singing, no trumpets, no fanfare. You and I don't like awkward silence. We don't like the, the pause and kind of just hearing the air. And so at this moment, it would have been somber. It would have been an absolute still moment. No one in the crowd of thousands was caught uttering a word. No one's cell phone went off. Well, they didn't have cell phones, but you understand the idea. The kids were hushed, and this is a solemn moment. And it's most likely at this exact moment, I believe, that Jesus stands up and he cries out, verse 37, and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And this is what scholars call the great invitation. This is our second idea of greatness, the great invitation. Look at it with me, where Jesus says in verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John gives us an inside when he says this in verse 39, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right, guys, so let's uh, think together. When, when it says Jesus cried out in a loud voice on the screen, the Greek is the, the word kradzo. It can be translated cry, scream, or shout. It's a really interesting word. It's one of those words that sounds like something. It sounds like the hoarse cry of a raven. So um, little side note, we live here kind of near Lakewood Ranch, and in the middle of the night, I guess a crane it's like three or four in the morning. One of those cranes that are on every golf course flew right by our window. 
and shrieked as it flew by our window just to make it in the sermon this morning, okay? And so it woke me up. I don't know if Jen heard that. I haven't talked to her yet, but it woke me up. And I, it almost was like yelling out the Greek word, krazo. Right? It was just yelling out. And it woke me up, startled me, and then I prayed and went back to sleep. Uh, but that's the idea here. It's, it sounds like a raven, a bird crying out. This is the word, krazo, that was used by Peter. Remember he tried to walk on water? I love Peter, right? He's cutting ears off when he shouldn't. He's saying stuff when he shouldn't. He's jumping out of boats when he shouldn't. But he goes to walk on water, steps out, gotta love him, and he looks at Jesus, then he sees the wind and the waves, and he panics, he has an anxiety attack, and he sinks, right? It says that he cried, so he cried out, Jesus, Lord, save me. That was the word used there. This is really cool. This is the word used by the seraphim, the angels, who cry out, you just sang it with me, they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They cried out, they krazo. It was used by the prophet Jeremiah to warn people of impending judgment. It was used by Jesus from the cross when it says he cried out in a loud voice to tell us die. Ray Pritchard says this, I love this. Note that Jesus stands and cries out with a loud voice. He pleads with people to come and drink the living water. You would think it would be the lost world that cries out for help, but it is the Lord himself who pleads with us. This is a strange thing. We are the ones who choose to die. It is God who pleads with us to live. He doesn't say, clean yourself up and then I'll give you living water. Thank God we can come be grimed with the dirt of our sin and the living water itself will wash us clean. On this last and great day of the feast, Jesus stands up and he cries out, breaking the silence. And in this loud voice brings a great invitation to all who would hear. And today, 2,000 years later, Jesus continues to cry out to each one of you, to each one of us. And he says this morning, are you thirsty? Are you longing for something? Are you satisfied? Are you full? Are you complete? Are you thirsty? Come to me and drink. I'm not inviting you to come to religion and drink. I'm not inviting you to come to Christianity and drink. You're not, I'm not inviting you to come to church and drink. Come to me and drink. Come to Jesus and you'll thirst no more. Now, I want to emphasize five realities of this invitation. So if you're taking note, please jot these down. Five realities of this great invitation, okay? So let's spend some time on this. First of all, number one, it kind of needs to be said, guys, the human soul has thirst. Obviously, Jesus is not saying, oh, the pitcher's empty. I've got some water in my back pocket. Do you guys need something to drink? This is not physical thirst, People keep misunderstanding him. He's not saying, come to me, I've got extra Aquafina, or if you're French, Evian. And it's not what he's saying. The people of Israel had longed for water in their desperate wanderings in the wilderness. And God had provided for them miraculously. And he's not saying physical thirst will be quenched. No, he's saying there's a thirst that's greater than our desire for water. And I call it, many different pastors, commentators call it soul thirst. Soul thirst. The problem that we encounter in this world is that nothing in this world will truly satisfy our soul thirst. Nothing. Uh, listen, church, the world outside of the four walls of this room uh, will not quench our soul, uh, the thirst of our soul, even though many of us sometimes live as though it would. And we think, well, if I only have this, if I only have that, if I only had him, if I only had her, then my soul thirst will be quenched. This new car, this new house, that new tech, it's not going to quench it no matter what the commercial says. That travel, well, let's just visit this new location. 
Let's go to somewhere exotic. That won't quench your soul thirst. Fine dining and the best that art or culture ever created won't quench it. Ladies, getting a new boyfriend won't quench it. Men, having that, that fling, it's not going to quench it. Getting married is not going to quench it. Well, as long as I get married, then I'll, I'll be fulfilled. That's not going to quench your soul thirst. Uh, pornography is not going to quench it. Leaving your spouse for someone else will not quench it. No amount of experiences or successes or bucket lists or money will satisfy the soul thirst that every one of us have built within us. A survey was done a few years ago where a thousand millionaires living in the U.S. were polled. And the question was this, are you secure? 90% of these millionaires said no, not secure. So then they followed up with a second question. Okay, well then what would it take to make you secure? And the average answer was five million. As long as I have five million, then I'll be secure. See, life has within it this intrinsic disorder built into it called disappointment. It's called disappointment. No matter what you take into your life, it still doesn't satisfy you. Uh, I mean, we know this, right? We take that romantic getaway. We can't wait to, this is going to solve our marriage problems. We're going to take this romantic getaway. And we get there and we go, oh, we're the same people. (laughs) We're the same people. Uh, We maybe leave a church to find another church, uh, another fellowship that will meet our needs. And we find we're still disappointed. Uh, we leave a relationship, say, well, I'll just get in this relationship. This will make me happy. This will satisfy. And then we go, oh, I'm bringing who I am into this relationship. I don't know if you guys ever heard about this woman. There was a woman who did everything that Oprah ever suggested. Uh, 2008, searching for fulfillment, yoga instructor, performance artist, Robin Okrant. She decided that every suggestive challenge she heard from Oprah Winfrey uh, from the show O Magazine or Oprah.com, she would attempt. Uh, Let's see what the headline reads. The headline reads this way. Woman follows Oprah's advice, ends up sad. (laughs) She spent $5,000, 1,202 hours, and 57 tasks. And at the end of it, she said, I'm sad and I'm tired. She launched a website and a book describing her experience. Here's what she said. It was incredibly draining. It made me really sad. It made me sad to think how many hours I lost even when I wasn't doing the project, to just blindly following advice and listening to what other people tell me I should be doing to create my own happiness. I wondered how many hours other women have lost in the course of their lives to that as well. How can you follow someone as loved and wise as Oprah and still end up sad? Why? Because you haven't quenched your soul thirst. Our soul is thirsty for the greatness Listen, for the majesty, for the power, for the wisdom and beauty and justice and love that's only found in God. John Piper said it this way. When you go without water, your body gets thirsty. And the soul, when it goes without God, gets thirsty. Your body was made to live on water. Your soul was made to live on God. The psalmist said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, a thirst for you in a dry and weary land. I can only be satisfied. By God. The human soul has thirst. We can acknowledge that today. Amen? The human soul, we are thirsty. And, and I just want to call out, there may be some of you who have been, been trying to quench that thirst with any of the things that were just mentioned. And we today just need to repent of that. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to convict and let the word of God convict. And so if those are areas you've been trying to quench, how's that going for you? And how are you feeling, right? It's like giving you a saltine cracker when you're desperate at the end of a marathon. Give me something to drink. You go, here, here, try the saltine. And it's laced with salt. It's not going to solve. It's not going to satisfy. So the human soul has thirst. Not only that, but secondly, 
the gift of water is, say it with me, free. It's free. The only condition required by Jesus is need. There's no earning. There's no meriting. You simply come thirsty and you receive. You drink. Spurgeon was trying to illustrate this to his congregation in England. And um, he said, any of you fools can drink. (laughs) In fact, many of us are great fools because they may drink too much liquor. So he's like, you guys know how to drink liquor, so it's not that hard. You just need to drink. Uh, And so his point is that the world knows how easy drinking is. Uh, But there's no catch. Uh, There's nothing deeper than, than what we're saying here. One of the songs that we love to sing here at Shoreline, we sang it at Easter, is the song, It Is Finished. Love this song. And one of the stanzas goes like this. It says, there's no sacrifice to offer. There's no penance to complete. Freely drink of living water. Without money, come and feast. Without money. It is completely free and available for us today. The cost was extreme. It cost God his son. But you and I can come today freely with no religious calisthenics to do. We don't have to say the right thing, do the right thing. We can come today and receive. Uh, A lot of us hear that, though. (laughs) And we go, okay, wait, hold on. What's the catch? There's got to be a catch. There's definitely something here that's a little deeper. Uh, Anybody here ever get talked into a free vacation? Hey, just come come to this seminar. We're going to give you a free vacation. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you you were with me. I was like, oh, this is a free vacation. We're going to Disney. And so I showed up in Orlando, and we sat down, and they're like, oh, well, first, um, you're going to get those tickets, by the way. But you've got to sit through a 17-hour presentation for timeshare. Uh, Some of you bought the timeshare. (laughs) We didn't have any money, so we uh, declined. But uh, maybe you didn't read the fine print. I went back and read it. It was there. The fine print was there. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen an ad but didn't read the fine print. Uh, There was an ad for uh, a fireworks tent, and it says, fireworks, free sparklers, no gimmicks here, with $10 purchase at the very bottom. I don't know if you can see that. Uh, one, one, um, one restaurant offered, fr- it looks like free beer, but if you look closely, it says free Wi-Fi and cold beer <laughs> in the smaller print. A lot of us have this idea that, oh, if I come to Jesus, like, there's, there's more, though. I've got to give my money. I've got to give my, like, 10%, right, Pastor? I've got I to now start attending church every week, and, and I've got to start, uh, I don't know, I've got to start, like, like cleaning up my act, I've got to you know, like start brushing with you know, white Colgate toothpaste. Like what, what, what is the condition here? What else? And I would say, no, you need to just come. We're not here to clean you up. We'll let the Lord do that sanctifying work. You come. If you're thirsty, come and drink. If you have soul thirst today, Jesus offers himself for you to drink. And there's no fine print. Thirdly, what Jesus offers, it's satisfying. Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers, torrents of living water. Now, to what scripture is Jesus referring? Well, perhaps the ones we mentioned earlier in the book of Isaiah, or it could be on the screen a reference to Zechariah 14.8, where it says, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Uh, Maybe that's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, though, the living waters you've sought are available in me. Uh, He's not saying, come to me and I'll give you what your soul needs. No, he's saying, I am what your soul needs. Church, listen, that means that all that we've longed for, our soul thirst, 
is ultimately found. It's ultimately quenched in Jesus. He is the fountain of living water. He is the water of life. It's not religion. It's not churchianity. It's Jesus. But when Jesus says here, out of his heart will flow rivers. I want you to jot this down. The word for heart uh, is also translated innermost being or more literally belly, right? The inner gut, the belly. The belly to the Jew was the inner part of us that's always craving something. And what Jesus says is from that place, from that place of innermost desire, uh, out of your belly, out of your heart, out of the centerpiece of who you are, right? you, where you're constantly craving something to be satisfied, will flow not a singular river, but torrents of life. To the Jew, they would say, like, like it's from my stomach right, that I long for this. Now, husbands, we would say to our wives, I love you with all my heart. Husbands, would you just look at your wife and say, I love you with all my stomach? Would you just tell your wife that today? I love you, or your future wife, I love you with all my stomach. Tell your kids right now, I love you with all my stomach. All right, that's awkward now. All right, the idea is that from the innermost place, from my heart, Jesus says, will not flow just a trickle. It's not a little spring. It's torrents, rivers of life that cause us to be abundantly fulfilled. And that's available to us today. I love this quote from John Piper, one of my favorite quotes recently. He says this, the, the aim of all theology, all study, all biblical learning, all preaching, I love this, is to spread the satisfying banquet for you to eat with joy and to protect the kitchen from poison. Everything Jesus came to do and teach is aimed at providing the soul with food and drink that satisfy forever. Have you placed your faith in Jesus for satisfaction and salvation? What Jesus offers is eternally satisfying. And we need to know that today. The fourth aspect of Jesus' invitation here is number four, Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit. He's referring to the Holy Spirit. John the Apostle explains here in verse 39. He says, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those uh, who were believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given for Jesus was not yet glorified. Uh, He says that these living waters that come from our heart uh, will happen because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So this invitation, if you're following this, is, is for... Uh, it's, it's from Jesus to come and be regenerated, receive the Holy Spirit, and then be rejuvenated, and you'll, you'll receive, and then out from you will flow living water. It's not just living water for you, it's living water from you. Uh, notice that he says here, if you thirst, as the scripture says, if you believe in me, it'll flow out from you, okay? In other words, faith in Christ, listen, will lead to an overflow of abundant life in the Spirit, which will bless and impact others. But as Jesus is speaking these words here in John 7, John's just trying to point out that this hasn't happened yet. The Holy Spirit wasn't yet given at this moment in time. We freeze frame. Jesus had not yet risen and ascended. And so that outpouring won't happen until at the Feast of Pentecost, many days after the resurrection. Uh, Many of us misunderstand the Holy Spirit. Pastor Carl Dixon came here over the summer, did a great teaching. It's on our podcast, on our website. Go back and listen to it to understand um, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Third person of the Trinity, we often misunderstand. We underemphasize or overemphasize the Holy Spirit. Uh, But those who have Christ have the Holy Spirit within them. Paul said this to the Romans, Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 
Okay, so the Spirit of God dwells within all believers. And Jesus is saying here, the indwelling Holy Spirit in all believers is a spring of many refreshing waters that will bring abundant life. It was necessary, though, that Jesus first ascend to the Father before the Holy Spirit was given. And that is of critical importance. Uh, This is what F.B. Meyer explains. He says this, Calvary must precede the ascension, and both must come before Pentecost. It was needful for him to be by the right hand of God exalted before he could ask for and receive and shed forth the Holy Spirit of promise. The one paraclete must finish his work and be withdrawn ere the other could come to take up and finish his work on earth. I like this. The son must sit down on the throne or the spirit could not descend to sit on each of the disciples. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings regeneration and brings rejuvenation, refreshment within and without us. But there's one more aspect of this. Number five, fifth aspect of this invitation is that Jesus in doing this is absolutely declaring himself to be the Messiah. Remember, that's the moment, possibly, as the priest pours out the empty vessel, that they would be recounting the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, hey, if you're thirsty, Israel, people listening, come to me and drink. That's why in verse 40, 41, look at their reaction. It says, therefore, many of the crowd, from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is him. This is the prophet. Or, this is the Christ. There is a distinction. A lot of them think he's the prophet. Deuteronomy 18, Moses testifies of this future greater prophet. Others say he's the Christ, and that's a great response. Only the Christ, only the Messiah can offer life like this. Now earlier, remember we mentioned the last greatest day of the feast, that the people would recite Isaiah 12, 3. Remember we we learned that? They would recite Isaiah 12, 3. Here's what Isaiah 12, 3 says. I love this. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They would say that as he scooped water out of the pool of Siloam, walked through the water gate. They'd just be recounting that. Okay, this is really fascinating. If you were to take the Hebrew word for salvation, uh, it's the word Yeshua, you, you derive it from Yasha, which means to save or to deliver. So if you were to transliterate that word salvation from the Hebrew into Greek, guess what name it is? It's the name Jesus. Here's how you would read this in the Greek or in the English. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of Jesus. That is what they're actually literally saying. And that is completely ridiculous for any mere man to stand up in this moment and interrupt the silence of this religious event and offer everyone in the crowd to drink of themselves and receive refreshment. (laughs) Jesus is declaring, hey, you've just tasted the best that religion has to offer. And this is it. This is as good as it's going to get. But if you're thirsty still, and you don't find all of this ritual satisfying, then come to me and drink, because I am the fulfillment of this feast. I am the Christ, the great invitation. And church, the great invitation remains even today for you and for me. It doesn't matter what your background looks like. It doesn't matter your past, the sin that you could unroll before us and lay out and say, these are all the things I've done. The Lord is mighty to save. And sadly, many will reject this offer. In the case of those that were there on that day, they were still confused about who Jesus was and where he was from. And so we've seen the great day of the feast. We've seen the great invitation. Let's now thirdly look at the great or not so great plot of the Pharisees. Look at the rest of 41. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Some of them wanted to take him. 
but no one laid hands on him. Why? We know this, because his time had not yet come. Now, this is significantly ironic, right? They're like, well, no, he, we know the Christ uh, has to come from Bethlehem. <laughs> the very thing that should cause them to have faith in Jesus was keeping them from having faith. One of the strongest proofs that he was the Christ, they didn't understand. He was born in Bethlehem, but they would assume he came from Galilee, and they assumed wrong. Even though verse 43 says there was a division, a better idea is that it was a violent dissension. There's like a riot breaking out. They were angry, strongly divided about Jesus, which, by the way, that's true of any group of people. Any group of people will be greatly divided about the claims of Christ. Now, you guys remember the Keystone Cops from earlier? Remember the Keystone Cops? All right, so they wanted to grab Jesus. How many of you know that reference? Is there anyone who knows? Okay, good, both of us. So uh, they wanted to grab Jesus in verse 44, but no one laid hands on them. <laughs> okay, this is amazing. I love this. They come back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and, uh, and, and there's, there's one person missing from the crowd of, of the officers. And who's the person missing? They've got the chains, they've got the handcuffs, they've got the net, however they were going to capture him, but someone's missing. Jesus. Uh, so look at verse 45. Then the officers came to the chief priest Pharisees, and then they said, why have you not brought him? I love verse 46. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Why didn't you arrest Jesus? Oh, what, have you heard him speak? I mean, he's awesome. <laughs> I love the testimony of verse 46. Why? Because it's remained true for the last 19 centuries. Amen? No man indeed has ever spoken like this man. This response would have incensed the Pharisees. Let's just look at their reaction. Verse 47. Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, look at us. We're brilliant. None of us believe in him. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. In other words, yeah, this crowd's under a curse. We know better. They're uneducated. They're ordinary. They don't even know the law, but we do. David Gusick says the pride of the religious leaders was plain, as was their despising of the common people. They hoped to shame and intimidate the officers who didn't arrest Jesus with the idea that all the smart and spiritual people don't follow Jesus, so neither should you. I love this, though, that they said, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Okay, well, one of them, in this moment, uh, begins to speak out loud. There is a man of wisdom among the Pharisees. Remember him from John chapter 3? He's back. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him? and knows what he's doing. Okay. So he's taking a small stand here. By the end of John's gospel, Nicodemus will be throwing in his lot with Jesus as he assists Joseph of Arimathea in preaching or in preparing Jesus' body for burial. And so he's simply asking them, hey, um, are you guys judging with true justice? Uh, these men are the embodiment of injustice. They're presuming guilt before approving it. And they're judging someone based on their appearance. Church, that's, that's not how we're to do we're not to judge people based on their appearance or to assume they're guilty before uh, proving it. And so they answered and said to Nicodemus, are you also from Galilee? Search and look. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Okay, this is just a cheap shot at a burn. Galilee was the countryside up north. And so the, the rural folk, right, the people who were the blue-collar workers, they were not the cosmopolitan like these Pharisees. And, and so they, they had so much contempt for the people that they felt were beneath them, that it even clouded the truth about 
the Galilean prophets. Okay, here, this is what's funny. When they tell Nicodemus here to search and see that no, no prophet ever arose from Galilee, they're actually wrong. They're, they're completely false. Jonah and Elijah were from Galilee, uh, and perhaps even Hosea and Nahum. And so uh, at least two, maybe even four prophets came from Galilee. So they're not even thinking clearly. And their judgment is becoming so blinded that the closer we get to Calvary, we'll see more and more injustice and more and more blindness. And so they thought, man, we've got a great plan. And the plan backfired. Does that ever happen to you? You've got a great plan. I'm going to do this. This is going to be great. And uh, you didn't account for Christ in the plan. You didn't account for Jesus. Well, they didn't account for Jesus. And so they send men to arrest Jesus, and the men instead were arrested by Jesus. Now, in this section of Scripture, uh, I want to just bring some application. The Apostle John wants us to see that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, that God himself would be their shelter. As they're celebrating, looking back and looking ahead, that God would say of his son in John chapter 1 that Jesus literally is the word who became flesh and tabernacled, who dwelt among his people. Paul explained in 1 Corinthians 10, we've looked at that recently, that Jesus himself was the rock that supplied Israel with water in the barren desert. We learned in the last few weeks from John chapter 6 that Jesus is also the bread of life. He's the fulfillment of the manna uh, that sustained Israel in the wilderness. And so now on this last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus claims to be the source of living water to anyone who would come to him and who would drink. In other words, Jesus says, I'm here to fulfill all that this feast symbolizes. I, it's fulfilled in me. I've come to dwell with you, to pitch my tent among you, to bring my presence among you, and to provide for you and to protect you. Now, before we close this amazing passage, I, I want to frame our application in the form of a question this morning. And I'll put it on the screen so that you can take this home as a thought. How will you today respond? You, sir. How will you, ma'am, how will you respond to Jesus' invitation? This is not the moment when you nudge your husband, when you flick your kid's ears to pay attention. This is for you. This is for me. How would we respond? How should we respond to Jesus' invitation? Uh, during the course of a year, you're going to get an invite to a lot of different things. You're going to get an invite to uh, a wedding. In fact, I have a few invites here. Um, we were invited, or at least my wife was invited, to the bridal shower of Christine Wozniak. We're going to be doing, I'm going to be doing Christine and Joey Bacigalupo's wedding uh, in a few weeks. It's only a few weeks, guys. Coming. Yes, we can clap for that. That's good. Awkward. Um, so we, we were given a bridal shower invite. We were given a save the date in case we don't have good memories or technology. We were given now a formal invitation. So, I mean, we're, we're overcome with great graphics and social media, right? Here's all this romantic stuff. And so we were, we're excited to go to those. That, those are exciting. I was invited by a young man recently to his, um, his graduation party yesterday. And so I was, those are things we're excited to go to. We get those, and yes, I want to go. Depending on what it is and who's inviting, sure, I'll go to that. We're excited about it. Maybe someone invites you to dinner at a fancy restaurant. Hey, I'm going to buy. Oh, okay, what time is it? We'll make plans to be there. We're, we're going to make it. Hey, someone says, hey, we're going on vacation. We have an extra spot. Do you want to go with us? <laughs> Where are we going? Sign me up. Oh, I work. Yeah, I'll take it off. Uh, maybe a ball game. Hey, the Yankees are playing. All right, well, let's go see the ball game. Maybe it's a concert. Depending on what it is who's inviting, we're open to it. 
Then there's the other invites. There's the other invites from the people we're not wanting to maybe attend their event. And so we come up with reasoning, like, well, the underwear drawer does need to be rearranged that day. Uh, we've got something, honey, don't we? Create something, right? There's the invites we don't necessarily want. Maybe it's a sales pitch. Uh, maybe it's uh, in your kid's younger class, there's the obligation of the other kids in the classroom, their birthday, right? And so as a parent of a young daughter, uh, everyone in the class has to go, right? That obligation, we got to go to this party. We've got to spend $30 on this, on this gift. And so there's this obligation. Your friends are moving. <laughs> and they go, hey, we're moving. Could you show up and help me move? You're like, well, I did like my Saturday, but yeah, I'll, I guess I'll help you, right? Some invitations are exciting, some are not. Some of them are an obligation. But today, we have a choice to RSVP, so to speak. You have a choice to neglect, to ignore, reject the invitation that Jesus extends to you. From the Old and the New Testament, listen to these invitations. Isaiah 55.1, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's an invitation to come. A similar verse at the end of our Bibles, Revelation 22.17, the spirit and the bride, that's the church, say come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You and I have an opportunity to come to the fount of living water who will satisfy our soul thirst. The water of life, torrents of living water as the spirit of God regenerates and rejuvenates us in his presence. Will you today, RSVP, will you respond as Jesus invites you to come, will you receive or reject his offer? You see, one of the indictments against God's people was proclaimed through the mouth of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2.13, God says this indictment against the people. He says, for my people have committed two evils. Number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain the fount of living waters. And secondly, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, but they're broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, God says, I've got it all. It's found in me. And you've neglected me. And secondly, you still long for that. And what you've done is you've dug your own cistern, your own broken water supply, a well that's dry, and you know it's dry. You've done these two things. You can forsake that fountain of living water, but by doing so, you're attempting to dig your own broken, dried-up well. As we close today, I want to invite the band forward, and we're going to close in song together and just reflect on who Christ is. But Jesus here says, the one who comes and drinks of me, in other words, the one who says, I can't make it without you, Lord. He says, I'm going to baptize them in my spirit. And their lives are going to be like rivers of refreshment, not just for themselves, but to a thirsty, dying world. The older I get, the, the more I'm aware of two things. First of all, I'm, I'm becoming much more aware of the desperate despair in our world. Are you guys seeing it? Are you guys feeling it? Are you hearing it? There is a desperate cry in the world of despair. I'm seeing that, but secondly, I'm also seeing the older I get, the more of a need in my own life for the Holy Spirit um, to flow from my life. I realize, man, I need more of Jesus, but more accurately, that I need his spirit to have more of me, uh, to refresh others around me, and to have the Holy Spirit flow out from me to bless others. Have you entered into that promise today? Could we ask, are others experiencing the abundance of blessing through your life, through this church? 
My pastor's challenge for us this morning is come thirsty. Come thirsty. What was the criteria? Just come and drink, not beg, not grovel, but just come. When you come, it means you recognize your need. And when Jesus says drink, it's a continual sense of the verb. Come continually. Keep on drinking. Keep on partaking. Allow the Spirit of God to be fully assimilated into your life and then be a conduit of blessing and refreshment to others. I read a story this week, and I want to close with this. A pastor who visited a young female amputee, and this young girl was changing the world. Here's what the pastor said. He said, when this girl was 18, she was seized with a dreadful affliction, and the doctor said that to save her life, he must take off her right foot. Next, her left foot was removed. The disease continued to spread and her legs had to be amputated at the hips. Then the malady broke out in her hands and by the time I saw Miss Higgins, all that remained of her was just the trunk of her body. For 15 years now, she's been in this condition. And so I went to offer her comfort, but I did not know how to speak to her or what to say. When I walked into her room, I found the walls of her room covered wall to wall with letters all of them radiating joy and peace. And she explained that one day while lying in bed, she inquired of the Lord, what can a total amputee do for you? And then an inspiration came to her. She called a friend of hers who was a carpenter. And the carpenter, she had him construct a device that would fit on her shoulder and attach to it an extension with a fountain pen. And she then began to write letters witnessing to the grace of God. And she had to do it using entire body movement. Yet her penmanship over time became beautiful. And at the time the pastor wrote this, he said, she has now received over 1,500 replies from individuals who have come to Christ through her letters produced in that way. The pastor said to her, how do you do it? And she just smiled and replied, Jesus said that of his own followers, out of them shall flow rivers of living water. And I believe what he said, and he has helped me to overflow to others. Is that you today? Do you want to be an overflow, a blessing to others? Maybe you need to repent of digging your own cistern. And today I want to extend an invitation for you to come and to drink. And I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. Do you want to receive refreshment today? Not for yourself, though, for others. Would you raise your hand that I could pray for you, that you'd come to Jesus this morning? Say, Lord, I acknowledge this fountain is not found in myself. It's not found in the things that I've tried to look for. I'm not being satisfied. I'm dried up. Lord, today, I raise my hand to say, fill me afresh. Flow through my life. Anyone else? Raise your hand today. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for those who have raised their hand that want uh, today to come to the source of living water, that the Holy Spirit would rejuvenate and refresh them. For those who are not yet a believer, Lord, would you work a regenerative work within them and let them come to Jesus today to receive that living water of refreshment by your spirit. We love you, Lord. We commit the rest of our service to you and we pray that we would be drawn closer to you in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we worship? Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. For more content, visit our website, thisisshoreline.com. Make sure to tune in next time as we continue our study through the Gospel of John in the series, I Am.